my goal this morning is actually twofold. I actually want to share about um, the mission I'm a part of, Ethnos Canada. You guys are familiar with them, at least to a degree, through Pete and Leah, uh, or Pete Enns. So I want to share about Ethnos, about what my ministry hopefully will look like, and then uh, I want to share from the Word. Um, I think that's that's important. So um, I actually got to know Pete and Leah pretty well through the training that I had with Ethnos. So... Um, I really love them. I know you guys have had a lot of interaction with them, or at least to a degree, and I know you guys appreciate them, and so uh, I feel with you. I got to know them really well. So, um, so yeah, just sharing about what is ethnos. Who are we as a mission? I know you're familiar, but maybe you don't know everything about how we do things, so I want to share about that. You know, we were a mission on, it used to be New Tribes Mission, founded in 1942 by six men in northern Michigan, actually. Um, with the vision for reaching the world. And there's this quote um, from the Brown Gold magazine, the first issue they had. Um, By unflinching determination, we hazard our lives and gamble all for Christ until we reach, have reached the last tribe regardless of where that tribe might be. And those six men who wrote that quote or said that, um, little did they realize that actually shortly after they said it, five of their men would be killed. Um, who here has watched that movie, End of the Spear? Okay, what happened to them is very similar. I mean, they, these five men actually had turned into seven, uh, or these six men turned into seven. Another man joined, and they went to Bolivia, and they wanted, they heard, they had heard about the Ayore tribe in Bolivia, and they wanted, they had made a decision, okay, we want to go reach them with the gospel. So uh, they moved to Bolivia, they set up their, their base in Santa Cruz, and they're on their way into the bush, they're plowing, they're making a trail, and uh, I think they were two weeks in, um, and they get a letter from town, from Santa Cruz, because they'd left their, their wives back in Santa Cruz to kind of unpack, take care of everything, make sure the homes were good, and they get a letter basically saying, hey... Um, the landlord that we were renting from told us to move. He had sold the place. We need to move. And so they sent back two men to go help the ladies uh, pack everything up and move. Little did they know that was the last they would have communication with those other five men in the bush. Um, and they, for I forget how long, but it was many years, they never knew what happened to them. And the two men that went back to help the ladies ended up actually... Um, plant the church in the Ayore, or they planted the church in the Ayore people, the same people who actually killed those five men. Um, and they, for a long time, did not know what happened. Every day just disappeared. Um, found out, actually, they um, they killed them and ate them, just so you know, all evidence would be gone. Um, little did they know that what they said in that quote would actually happen. So the mission organization as a whole, we, our goal is to reach those who are unreached, those who have no chance to hear the gospel unless someone goes to them because there are such people. But the question is, you know, why do we do what we do? Now we have, as a mission, seek to accomplish the goal through five realms, and I'll share about that. But first I want to go into why do we do what we do. And in Romans 10, uh, 13 through 14, it's a familiar passage. Um, 
For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how, but how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? These unreached people groups don't have a chance to hear the gospel. They don't have any churches there. They don't have any, you know, any Christians in order to be able to have the influence to know Christ. And I just want to share a little bit about my personal testimony, and it goes into why we do what we do. Uh, actually, Daryl and Rachel were a part of that um, back in 2012 when we took that trip to Mexico. Um, you know, we went down there kind of get an, um, get a taste of what third world missions would be like. And I met a girl there, and no, I didn't start dating her. So Lauren, nope. Uh, <laughs> But through her, I actually ended up getting in contact with her brother-in-law, who is a missionary in Papua New Guinea. Uh, his name is Brandon Buser. He was with the people group, or uh, they called the P- the BM people. And uh, so I got in contact with him. I wanted to be, I was interested in missions. I wanted to know more. And so he, I emailed him. He emailed me back. I started supporting him. Uh, but I had the privilege of actually starting just as they, as the mission team were starting to teach um you know, through the Old Testament towards Christ. So I was able to start just as they started teaching, which was super cool, but they ran into some issues, some problems that they had because, I mean, being unreached people groups, they had no understanding of God. They had no understanding of anything about the Bible. But they had some other problems. One of them was they had no word for love. They actually had no concept in their culture about love. They had no word for savior. They had nothing to actually describe what it means to save somebody. So that's a problem. How do you tell them about the savior when you can't use the word love because they don't understand it? It means nothing to them. So the the people group had this story or a kind of a myth is what they called the um the roadman, and they had in their myth of the story that someone would come who was called the roadman and would tell them the way they needed to go, what they should do. And so they used this. They decided, well, this is the closest thing we can find to what Christ is going to do. So let's use that. So then they started sharing from... You know, they did the chronological teaching. They started in Genesis, and they started sharing. They got to Christ, and man, the people were excited because the roadman was here. They understood it right away. Jesus was this roadman, the one to tell them what to do. Little did they know they were actually wrong in their assumption of who Christ was, but I'll share about that in a little bit. So they're teaching about Christ. They're excited. They're like, yes, finally. And then they get to the cross. And their hopes were completely dashed. Because here they thought Jesus was going to show them the way to go. And now he's dead. He's hanging on that cross. What do we do now? Everything is done. Everything we were hoping for is gone. Um, Maybe the missionaries were a little sadistic in this, but they kind of left them hanging right there. Kind of come back tomorrow for the rest of the story. That's actually what they did. They told them tomorrow... We're going to share the rest of the story, so come back. People were devastated. People were weeping. Uh, 
So the missionaries go home, they prepare for the next day, and uh, they come back in the morning and the people are already there. Actually, most of them hadn't even left. They decided to stay in that little building because they're like, well, we don't want to do anything that might harm us or we might end up not getting back because we want to hear what's going on because this can't be the end. They can't all stand what to ask. And uh, so he, they start sharing about Christ, about how he, yeah, he was in the grave, but he rose again. And then the light started coming on. The people started recognizing, oh, oh, this wasn't over. Our hope is still there. And then they recognized, oh, wait, Jesus had to rise from the dead. He had to die. But then something else happened. You know, what I mentioned about the road man, that their perception was wrong. And this comes from one of the testimonies of one of the men that came to Brandon after and shared. He said, you know, all our hope was in this road man, that this road man was going to tell us what we need to do. But what we failed to realize was, and these are all my own words, so that Jesus was not the road man. He was not the guy to show us the way. He is the road. He is the way to go. He's not just the simply the guy who will tell us what to do. He is the road. He is the way. He is the truth, and he is the life. Acts twenty six eighteen. You know Paul's testimony before Agrippa, when he shares about God's plan for Paul's life. He says his goal was to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That is why we do what we do, so that people's eyes are turned to Christ, that they, you know, that they go from under the dominion of Satan to God. So now we go from there. What do we do? I mean, our aim is to plant churches among the unreached people groups, like I mentioned. Um, and I think for me, growing up, one of the thoughts that I had, you know, what, what is missions? My thought was usually somebody standing in front and just preaching the gospel, you know, evangelizing, which that is true to a part, to a degree. That is only the beginning, but not really even the beginning of the whole process. It's just that's when the church starts. So what I've come to understand is that it's just a small part of the bigger picture. Seeking to plant a church in a cross-cultural setting, there has to be some groundwork laid in order for that to happen. So as a mission, we do have a plan, and actually I gave, uh, who did I give it to again? Phil, sorry. <laughs> uh, just a document, basically, a highlighting, so if you have more questions, you can talk to me or look at that later. Um, but we do have a plan about how this happens. But I have to remember this plan um, it is not God-ordained. It is simply a method that man has made. Though it is very effective, it's just a method. There's many other organizations that are out there that are doing a good job and they do things differently. Um, so in order to reach the unreached with the gospel, there has to be a foundation, something we call pre-evangelism. Basically, it starts with learning the language of the people. Um, we believe that communicators of the gospel, as communicators of the gospel, we have given the responsibility to communicate clearly. Um, Colossians 1, 24-25 says, you know, when Paul's speaking of his um, message he's been given, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and my flesh I'm willing to fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And I'm not going to go into all the Greek words, but the word basically means management, oversight, um, 
not of your own property, but of someone else's property. So when we think of the gospel, his message, God's word, this is the stewardship that we've been given. It's not ours, it's God's. So we, can't, we don't want to mess that up. So we want to be able to communicate them with them in a clear way. And we know how communication can be difficult. I mean, you married guys, how often do you say something and then your wife hears something different? It doesn't even just have to be with ladies. Even us guys, we say stuff and we don't even understand each other. So um, as a mission, we really strive to be able to c- clearly communicate. Um, we also run into this issue of, of literacy. Often the people we go to cannot read or write, even in their own language. Um, so we actually work to actually learn their language and culture enough so that we can break it down on its parts, you know, grammar, the fun stuff. Um, and through that, we develop an alphabet for them and able, and able to teach them how to read and write in their own language so that they can take God's word and they can read it for themselves, they can study it, and they can grow from that, that, it's not, that they're not relying on us as a missionary. Because really we want them to be trusting in Christ alone, not in us, to be able to bring the word to them. Um, we do this through chronological Bible teaching. We seek to plant the church. You know, like I mentioned about the BM people, most of these people we strive to go to do not have any, or do they have little understanding about the Bible. And as we teach from creation to Christ, we highlight the character of God as revealed throughout scriptures, showing God's plan of redemption as it starts in Genesis and culminates in Christ himself coming. <clears throat> you might have heard of it. It's called Firm Foundations. But even with that, we have to be, I have to remind myself that, yes, it's a very effective method of teaching, but again, it's, it's not God's word. God's word takes priority. We want them to be able to learn from God's word, not from simply our curriculum. So after chronological, well, through chronological teaching, we also translate God's word. That's a huge emphasis that we have in ministry. Um, we seek to translate into their heart language. We take this so for granted in our la- in in our world because we've always had it. And I think this is an issue of authority. And what do I mean by authority? Is that ours are God's? And again, it comes down to. Um, when you're preaching to people, it's easy for people just to take your word for everything because it's hard to actually study for yourself. But especially if you can't read, I mean, I think of that was part of the Reformation was people weren't allowed to study for themselves. Part of the translation, many of the problems during the translating of the scriptures into English was, well, the Catholic Church didn't want that to happen because then people could study for themselves. Our goal is that they're not relying on us that they, we want them to be able to read God's word because his word is what changes hearts, not what we say. Again, we don't want to be the authority for everything that we teach, but it's, we want them to be grounded in the word of God. For them to grow into maturity in their faith in Christ, it has to come from God through the authority of his word. Um, part of that then after we've, I mean, all of this happens basically at the same time, but we also train national coworkers. Our goal is to work ourselves out of a job. We don't want them to be, again, be reliant on us because we as a missionary won't always be there. Um, Whether it's through health or other issues, people have to leave. So we want them to be able to be equipped, to be able to lead themselves. And uh, I think of Titus. Um, 
Paul um, telling Titus in chapter here, let me just go to it. Titus chapter one, verse five. Paul tells Tim, uh, Paul tells Titus, "This is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you." So his goal was that Titus should go and establish leaders, not to be the leader that's there forever. Um, so when we look at all these things, this is not just going to be something that takes place over two, three weeks, or it's not a short-term trip. How does this look like time-wise? Oh, all that was to establish thriving churches. Sorry, I missed that part. Uh, what does this look like? Um, 50 years? <laughs> um, see, I'm right now I'm in this preparation stage the first six, seven years. I just finished the training, and now I'm in that partnership development. But then... You know, you get to the country, you learn the national language. That can take up to two, three years. Then you move into a tribe. You learn that language in order to be, be able to communicate clearly. That can take a little while. And then church ministry. Well, that's, that's, that's never going to end, really. But our ministry there might end within 15, 20 years. Because, we, we, I mean, we won't last forever, so. So yeah, when you think of that, pray for your missionaries, whoever you think of. When you think of missionaries, please pray for them. This is not a short-term thing. Um, pray for me because that angst me a bit when I dank on 40 years being gone. Uh, I've just been gone for a couple of years and I already missed so much. But So how do I feel or how do I see myself fitting into this the big scheme of things? I just finished a training with Ethnos. Uh, past December, so I joined the mission. Um, I'm now actually en route to uh, to Mexico. I plan to be there hopefully next April. I'll be moving to Chihuahua to learn Spanish. Um, one thing about Ethnos in Mexico, they'll take missionaries any year, but so how did I come to April? Um, well, they want, as Ethnos in, in Mexico, they want, even though they take anybody at any time, they do want people to come in groups. So I joined this group that was already coming, which was two couples, uh, Caleb and Emily Arnold, Luke and Jess Rondi. Um, see, these two couples I actually went to Bible school with, which is super cool. I was a groomsman at Luke and Jess's wedding. Um, so I know them really well, so I'm really excited about that. And then after we've, we've moved there, so we've learned the language, learned Spanish, that's when we would move into a tribal group. Uh, there's, I think, 100 different tribal groups in Mexico. Uh, with seven of them where Ethnos is actually involved in. This is a list of tribes that they've been involved in, but some of them don't have people anymore, um, or there might be tribes they're trying to get into right now. Uh, so in order for me to be able to get to Mexico, I'm I'm actually at this point, I'm raising a team of uh, ministry partners, people to come alongside in ministry, people who, I need prayer, um, people to come alongside praying. I mean, there's always... There's many needs that I have. There's many failures I have. I need prayer. Um, there's a whole issue of finances. I'm needing to raise 3000 a month. I'm currently actually at 53%, so praise the Lord for that. But honestly, actually, I think the best way to partner with me is actually go yourself. Um, uh, there's many needs here at home. I agree. Do we need people here to invest in people here at home? Yes. But what about the people who don't have access to the help they so desperately need. 
you know, Matthew 9, 36 to 38, when Jesus, he had been preaching, um, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Um, we overlook it very easy, or when we do think of it, it's often, uh, I was like this. Yes, Lord, here I am, send him. <laughs> Check on, please, nicht me. Um, but I like this quote from Paul Washer. Uh, he said, uh, We have all been called to be involved in the Great Commission with equal passion. Whether we stay here or go to the darkest jungles of Indonesia, we have all been called to embrace the Great Commission with equal passion. And I wholeheartedly agree. We're all part of the team. There's no individualism in Christianity. And that's one of the reasons why I joined Ethnos, and that's because of their emphasis in partnering with the local church. So that people here at home providing for the missionaries are just as much part of the team as those who are overseas. Brandon Buzer did that for me when he got me involved, even though I wasn't even there. And I find it interesting because he emailed me one day and he's like, hey, I showed them a picture of you to the people. And uh, just so that they could see that there's others that are involved in these people getting the message. He showed them the picture of me and my deer, which was the deer that I shot, um, which they kind of found interesting. But uh, it's just cool that like the technology we have to be involved in people on the other side of the world I find that just amazing. So my desire is to do that for my supporters, whether they're praying for me or giving, whatever, is that they may be part of the team. That it's not just about the people who go, but it's everybody who's involved. I was influenced to go because of a missionary, because of being a supporter, and I hope to do that for others as well. And I actually brought prayer cards in the back if anybody wants one. Um... I have them in back. I have a newsletter that I send out if you want to be, if you want to get them. I have that. I have a sign-up sheet in the back if you want to sign up for that. And I would love to continue the conversation, continue to get to know you guys. I mean, I live here in La Crete, so you can all, uh, um, we can all go for coffee or something, get to know you guys. Um, so yeah, now I want to transition. I think it's good to uh, my sermon, and we'll be in Romans chapter ten. And so my goal with this this part of the, mes- uh, the message, I guess, is just to give a give a challenge to missions through what Paul says in Romans um, to be involved in what God is doing in the world. I don't think there's anything better than actually being involved with what God is doing. So first of all, I would just want to lay the context to what we'll be sh- talking about in, in chapter ten, and we'll go through chapters one through nine, just in the, at thirty thousand feet in the air, just kind of breeze through that just so we can lay the context of chapter 10. And I'll do this in a little bit of a more interactive way. I decided this morning when I got here, because it's a small group, we can do that. So the, the book of Romans, I mean, most of the letters are broken up into thought patterns, patterns that the author had. And Paul breaks up, at least I think he does, chapters 1 through 3 is one section. Um, so can somebody give me a summary of chapters 1 through 3? <laughs> I can do it for you. The uh, reason why I wanted more interactive just to make sure we're all on the same page. See, Romans 1 through 3, really he's just saying everybody's condemned. Um, chapters 1, he's talking about, um, actually, 
chapters one actually really describes the animistic tribal people of the world. It's very interesting. He talks about how they choose, they've in the past chose to worship the creation rather than the creator. They chose to follow the fables of the world. Um, then God gave them up to their natural tendencies, allowing to do that. We see that evidenced in tribal people who live in fear of the uh, of the spirit world. And they have to do everything in order to appease the spirits to actually do them good. Everything from hunting, eating, everything is revolved around having to do something so that the spirits don't kill them. Um, one story, the uh, Yanomamo people in Brazil, one of my teachers shared the story where every day, because they the spirits are never there to help them, they're always evil, always wanting to kill them. I mean, they have some good spirits in their worldview, but they still have to appease them so that they don't leave. Um, so whether they were going to go and go to war with a neighboring tribe or if they were going to go hunting, they always had this one ritual they had to do every day. And uh, it was because there was a certain bird that was attributed to every tribe, every village. And that bird, whenever they would leave, the bird would go out and announce this is in their worldview, announced that they were leaving, that they were going somewhere, that they were doing something. So if they wanted to, I mean, there's a lot of warfare in the, in the Yanomamo people. They were considered, you know, basically the, the warring tribe. So if they were wanting to go fight the next neighbor, neighboring village, this bird would go over there and tell that village that, hey, these people were coming. So they had to go out, and uh, with every bird, there was also specific leaves on trees, because everything is connected. And these leaves would represented the bird. So if they shot the leaf, then that bird couldn't go over there and tell them that he was coming. So they would shoot the leaves, and then the bird couldn't fly over there and tell them that they were coming, and then they could go and defeat that village. But they would do the same thing for hunting, because the bird would go tell the, the pig that they were coming, so they had to shoot the leaf. Man, that just describes everything in <laughs> chapter 1. Chapter 2 and 3, I mean, it just talks about everybody else in the world, you know, those that are self-righteous in chapter 2, um, the hypocrites, people who think they are good, but in reality don't see themselves for who they are. I mean, I'm breezing over this, so I'm going to miss a lot. Chapter 3 talks about the Jews. Actually, yeah, the Jews, and then he kind of sums it up with, for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, and everybody is condemned. Everybody needs a Savior. So when we get to chapters 4 through 8... And this is basically where Paul starts, I mean, he preached the gospel before that, but he's talking about the gospel and spells it out very clearly. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for all things. Salvation, peace with God, justification, righteousness is found in Christ alone. He mentions he who works finds no redemption. This is my own word, so. Uh, but he who does not work but believes finds redemption. We find that we as believers died with Christ and therefore there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Those who believe are secure. You know, these five chapters are absolutely foundational to our faith. They tell us of who we are in Christ. But then we also get to chapter 9 and it is a difficult book chapter like they all are. But we find again a shift in Paul's thought. So he starts with sharing his heart. Like we often overlook this. I sure do. Paul is shedding his heart out to the people of his audience, obviously the Romans. You know, his heart is breaking for his people. 
I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, so on, the promises, everything. Even Christ... Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs from the race according to the flesh, that is, Christ, who is God, overall. Paul's shift is, yeah, is from the gospel, from the promise at the end of chapter 8, that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Then he shifts to chapter 9, and he talks about Israel. That's a lot of other things he talks about, but what I want to highlight is this issue of what about Israel? Because someone must have brought up that question to him. Wait a minute. God told you that nothing could separate us from the love of Christ. What about Israel? God had chosen them. They're his people. How come they're not saved as a nation? There's many promises to Israel as a nation. So what's going on? Does God go back on his word? So I And the way I see it, and this is just one way I see it, Paul is starting to defend God's character. Not that God's character needs to be defended, but as he's coming up against opposition to what he's saying, he's starting to answer questions that people have. So as much as he's defending God's character, he's also defending the nature of salvation. See, because the Jews had this thought that because I'm a Jew, because I'm Abraham's seed, I'm now a child of God. He's making the argument against that. He's saying, no, being an Israelite does not equal being a child of God. Now just think about our own people. Vizant visas Mennonitan. Vizant men in Mennonitan, so therefore Vizant Christians. And Paul says, no, that's not the way it works. Salvation does not come because you're an Israelite. Salvation is not found in Israel, but is only found in Christ. So is God faithful? Absolutely. He will fulfill those other promises. He promised that he's going to do it. But his point is not to show that just because, you know, how do I say this now? Salvation, he's, and in the whole gospel, or the whole book of Romans, he's talking about the gospel, the true gospel. Therefore, he doesn't want to lose focus from the gospel. So he's trying to bring them back that no, salvation has always been by grace through faith. It doesn't matter. It's not about your heritage. It's about who Christ is. The Jews did not find righteousness because they sought it through their own efforts. The Gentiles, he makes the argument on the other hand, did, did not seek for righteousness, but yet they found it by faith. And actually trying to attain righteousness by fleshly efforts is totally natural. We all do it. It's in our nature to try it, to have to do something. So that was a short overview of chapter 9. I missed a lot. Sorry, you're going to have to forgive me for that. But chapter 10, again, it starts with Paul's desire to see his own people, Israel, be saved. He says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. I'll just read 10, 1 through 4. My bro- brothers, my desi- heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Again, Yomavis, Menonites, and Zaya, Zaya, the same. 
we are zealous. I mean, if you don't, all it is a dinga, right? But it's out of ignorance that we do those things, not recognizing what the righteousness of God is. That Christ is the end of, of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Now we get to, chapter, or to verse 5. I actually found this section kind of confusing when I first started studying it because he's saying a lot of weird things, or at least that's what I thought when I first studied it. Um, so verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness as based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ down, bring up from the dead. Excuse me. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. See, he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. And uh, in Deuteronomy, it says, For this commandment I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and is in your heart that you can do it. See, the message was already there for them. God had brought it to them. Paul is using this uh, illustration of the Old Testament, or he's quoting the Old Testament because of the similarity of the situation he was facing. See, the message had already come. Jesus had already come. He died. He'd always ro- already rose again. It is in your hearts. I mean, it was there. It was in your mouth. Therefore, believe it. Just like Israel didn't need to go to so- have someone go to heaven and get the law for them, so the word of faith is already there. The message is right there in front of them. Believe it. It's not about what we do. It's about what God had done. Because if it's by the law or works of the flesh, in reality it would bring Christ down from his lofty position of God, of Redeemer, and put him actually lower than us because we are the one doing it. It's not God. So if it would be man's effort, you know, Christ coming down to earth and doing what he did is useless. There's no reason for it then. He just wasted his time. But I don't think God wasted his time. I don't think Christ did. Therefore, it's not about us. It's about what Christ did. And then we get to verse 9. Again, it's just, you know, Paul is just over and over talking again about salvation by faith, by grace through faith, reminding them that it's, it's about Christ, not about them. Verse 9 because if you confess with your mouth that the Lord that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, if God was far off or salvation was far off, this would not be possible. Salvation comes today. Whoever gets saved gets saved the same way. There's no distinction between Jew, Gentile, anybody, everybody. It's only by the preaching of the word. But then we get to verse 14, and this is where I want to challenge you guys. Um, and, uh, but. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, but. How will they hear? 
How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And I know that's very self-explanatory. I don't need to go in depth, but it's impossible for anybody who has never heard of Jesus to be able to believe in Jesus. It's not possible. We have to remember that those who have never heard of Jesus are not going to be spending eternity with him. Because if they could, why, why did Jesus die for us? Why did he come? How shall they hear without someone telling them? Verse 17 says, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. This hasn't been so much of a thing here, but I've had people tell me that um, if God wants to save you know, the heathen or those that are in the jungles who are unreached, why do we need to go? Why does the gospel need to preach? If he wants to save them, he can. If they are searching for God or searching for truth, surely God will call that good enough and let them in, basically. But my question is, is it good enough? Is it good enough that they are searching? Um, and I have to say it, though I actually don't like saying it. My, in my fleshly mind, it would make total sense if they are actually kind of searching for God, searching for the truth. I'm sure God would, you know, should let them in. That's my fleshly mind. But I'm not God. I don't make the rules. If people could say be saved simply in searching for the truth and worshiping a God who might be the right one, then what Paul says in Galatians is false. You know, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so I now say again, if anyone preaching to you a gospel other than the what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. So if we believe what Paul says, and I think we do, because he, I mean, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, that view that if people are searching, then God will surely save them is false if we do believe what the scriptures say. They will be lost if the one tells them. How shall the one preaching tell them unless he is sent? That's obviously just an obvious statement. You can't go unless you're sent. We can't ignore the fact that people who've never heard the gospel will perish in eternal fire. Someone needs to go tell them. Now, I would do want to interject with that, though, that I don't believe that God needs us. Um, he is totally capable of taking this message, and he's probably a lot, he, no, not just probably, he is a lot better at communicating that truth to people than we are because we mess things up all the time. But interestingly enough, he's chosen to go the route of allowing us to take his message to the world. I don't comp no, I, I understand it. Unless I just look at myself and then I realize how much I screw up and then it's like, oh, God, why do you do that? Why do you allow me to take your word? It's to show his power through how he changes lives. And in that way, God is, I mean, has changed my thinking in the last number of years and he, I, I hope he still is. I used to think missions was a lot about me, is but the message I would bring, what I would do. And in a sense, I thought that I had it all together and no mission would ever be good enough or their doctrine good enough. 
to be able to have me go be with them. And God had to humble me, and he's done that through a lot of different scenarios. I mean, I've realized that missions is not about me. Bringing the gospel to people, it's not about what we bring to the table. Missions is about, missions is about what God has done. I just have the incredible privilege to be able to partner with God in taking his message to the world because he is the one changing lives, not me. So I want to challenge you guys with one more thing before I finish with verse 15. And this is actually a challenge that my teachers gave me. If we really believe what it says, if people who do not hear the gospel will perish, will not spend eternity with God, um, the challenge they gave me is how many unbelievers do you know? And not just numbers. I'm not just talking about how many, like, oh, I know five guys that are not Christians. No, how many do you know personally? Are you friends with them? Do you invest in their lives? Now, this is something very foreign to us here in La Crete, at least to Vietnamese. Um, I mean, we surround ourselves with the believers, which is good and it's something we should do. But through that, somehow we ignore those sometimes who don't, or we sometimes ignore those who do not know Christ. And then we even become incredulous and judgmental of those who do seek to invest in the lives of unbelievers. Um, and I think part of this comes is because of what we've been taught. You know, growing up, uh, and when I say we, I'm not talking about everybody. I'm just, just kind of talking about more myself, really. We were taught to protect ourselves from the influence of the world and separate from the world, and part of that is true. And I'm not saying we become like the world or that we do the things that the world do because that's against what the Scriptures say. But how do we expect to reach out to those who don't know Jesus we can't associate with them. We say we need to be like Jesus, yet Jesus was accused of being friends with sinners, of tax collectors, hanging out with the worst of the worst. He was even called a glutton and a wine-bibber because of his association with sinners. And yet we do the exact opposite of what Jesus did. You know, Luke 7 tells a story of this sinful woman, most likely a prostitute, who came weeping. Uh, you know, a Pharisee had invited Jesus over um, and this woman comes in, she's weeping and she's wiping Jesus' feet with her hair as she's crying. I mean, her tears are falling and then she's kissing his feet and anointing his feet with oil. What is his reaction? And this is just something that I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks. The Pharisee who invited Jesus automatically dismissed Jesus' claims as being a prophet, being the Messiah, because if Jesus really was a prophet, then he would know what them to He would not allow her to do the things what she was doing to him. My question is first, like, how did they know who she was? Obviously, either they had seen her, or she probably wasn't. She probably was dressed like a prostitute. Honestly, if she was, if that's what she was, she was probably dressed like one. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew who she was. She had but had compassion on her. He forgave her sins. He didn't require her to change first. You know, she recognized her need for him. She believed him for what she said. So I'll ask you a question. What happens in our community when someone who doesn't fit our standard, whether it's through dress, 
whether it's through our actions or through their actions, they're unbelievers, but they don't fit our standard and they come to church, what happens to them? We kind of want them to sit in the back because they might not download. You know, what if a lady like the one who wiped Jesus' feet came into our churches here? What would happen if she came in here? She's obviously broken. She needs help. What would happen? I don't think she would get much help in our community. And I, and I say that not to condemn everybody else or that actually beta, no, but I think we do need a mindset shift in our community where we are looking to help those, looking to reach out instead of being so inwardly focused. So sorry for going on that tangent, but it's been on my heart lately. And part of that, uh, as I, I was working on the fire um, or helping fight fire a couple of weeks for the last couple of weeks, and and just one thing that came to mind is if if you do start reaching out to those who are really they're hurting, um, sometimes they don't even know it, but if you start reaching out to these people who we would consider, you know, the sinners. Uh, it won't be easy. Actually, you could be made fun of or even reprimanded sometimes by the people you trust or you thought you could trust. I saw it. I was working with someone while on the fire last week, and and he told me of stories where he would be hanging out with some of the guys after, you know, 16, 17 hours of working. And, yeah, those guys, they had a beer or they were smoking or they're cussing the whole day. I mean, I was there. That's kind of what they do all day, a lot of them. And the guy I was talking about who was hanging out with them, he wasn't taking part in what they were doing. He wasn't swearing like they were. He wasn't drinking. But for some reason, he was able to share with them Christ. And actually, they liked him. Um, why? Because he was still a, they were still a person to him. I know the Bible says we will be hated for his name's sake. That's true. But let it be for his name's sake, not for how we treat others. So I want to challenge you guys with that, that to look for opportunities to invest in lives of unbelievers because you don't know how much of an impact that can have on guys. I saw it happen out there with guys who were willing to invest in the lives. These guys opened up. They started talking about their life, you know, the struggles they have, and it opened the door to the gospel. So yeah, I do want to challenge you guys to the missions, to not just here, to the unreached, but if we're not involved in the Great Commission here, if we're not involved in the lives of sinners here, how do you think we're going to be involved in the lives somewhere else? You know, if we can't be involved as sinners here, what happens if we move to a different country, start investing in people and getting to know them, when you find out that, so there's this one guy I'm trying to, I'm becoming friends with, and I find out, okay, he's married, but he has multiple mistresses, and he brags about it, is an alcoholic and beats his wife. What are we going to do then? So here's this guy who's a mess. We can't be involved with sinners here, and yet they're, somehow we think we're gonna, it's going to be different. I don't think it will. Because if we're not faithful with the little things, how are we going to be faithful in the big? Maybe the Lord has you stay here and pray and give to those going, but honestly, maybe God has you to go. 
And I want to appeal to you on the basis of Romans 10.14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in whom and they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone telling them? So I want to encourage you to think outside your own world, your own situation you're in. And I have to challenge myself with that and start reaching out to those because that's the mandate that we've been given to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. So I want to close with verse 15, an encouragement. Uh, And Paul says, How do they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In the context, he's speaking in Isaiah 52. He's speaking of Jerusalem, falling under the powers of the Gentiles. Um, they were under, the, I forget, under the power of either Egypt or Assyria. I forget. God says he will redeem them for nothing, meaning nobody's going to have to fight. God is going to do that. They will know that it is God who's speaking and acting is when they do get redeemed. And when he says, or because of God's promised deliverance, he makes a statement, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news of happiness. Now, just think about this. What that means, so I mean, they didn't have all the communication we did back then, obviously, or now, obviously. So they had runners that would, yeah, after warfare, they would run from the battle back to the city, wherever it was, in order to tell the people the news of what was happening in battle. Just imagine the jubilation of you've been under bondage to these people for years, 70 years at least in Jeremiah, um, many years, and you have someone coming run up and said, hey, you're delivered. Like, you're free, guys. Like, we're no longer under them. We're free. Imagine being the messenger to be able to do that. The guy having the joy of running. I mean, I'm sure he had all the energy to be able to run all that distance to tell them what was happening. This is the same argument Paul is making here. He's saying everyone is under captivity to the enemy, but Christ came to deliver everyone who would believe in him. So this is not a burden to take God's word. It is an actual privilege to be able to tell people that their deliverer is here. The Great Commission is not a burdensome duty because we get to partner with the greatest missionary himself, and that is God. So God has given us this message to broadcast to the world. And like I shared earlier in Acts 26.18, he's given us this message to broadcast to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And kind of like that sinful woman in Luke 7 He has forgiven us much. So let us go and share his good news to all who will hear, 